Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Surviving My Podcast. A survivor podcast about living with dissociation, anxiety, and PTSD in support of all who have survived the trauma of abuse. Join me as we heal together, raise awareness, and inspire everyone to survive, thrive, and conquer their past. Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Surviving My Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm super stoked to have you back here for another edition of the show. If you're a first-time listener, I'm so glad that you found the podcast. I hope that you'll find it validating, encouraging, informative, and maybe a little fun, too. And if you are a longtime listener, thanks so much. Uh, You guys rock. You're amazing. I appreciate you, you all coming back, sharing, embracing this message of hope that I'm trying to send out and really just validating as many as possible. So thank you again for your support. You guys are amazing and I appreciate all of the feedback always. So with that, we're going to jump right into my special guest that I have for this week's show, which is somebody that I connected with online. I'm super excited to talk to Sherry. She's going to tell us about um, her survivor story, her advocacy work, her coaching work, and really kind of give us her idea and her approach to coaching. So Sherry, what's happening? And how are you? Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am doing great. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. Yep, yeah, it is my honor, and I'm I'm excited to uh, to share your story and to uh, just let everybody know you know more of what you're about if they have not um, heard of you in the past. So before we get started on your coaching work and the adv- advocacy and the speaking. Um, if you would like to share a little bit of your story as a survivor, um, as much as you're comfortable with, the floor is all yours or the microphone as the case may be. Okay. Um, yes. So I am a survivor turned thriver, which I'll talk about later, of sexual assault when I was a college freshman, and that was 45 years ago. Basically, I was having the best, one of the best years of my life as a freshman. And um, the world was an exciting place for me. It was the early 70s. And it was the world of free love and social activism and all things possible. And of course, I was a little hippie girl back then, trusting the whole world. There was no reason not to at that time in our in our history. So one day, Well, just to set the tone, back in in those days, in the early 70s, one of the ways that people got around college campuses was basically to hitchhike. And um, it was something that was done constantly. One day I was hitchhiking with my friend and I was going out to, uh, we were in the middle of farm country. That's where my university was. And we were needing a ride. I was going to go, I was a jewelry apprentice. I was going to my apprenticeship and we got in this car, like we always did on campus. And I was in the front, she was in the back and this guy took off and um, he was driving really fast. And we realized very in short order that he uh, reeked of alcohol. It was a real scary warning sign. And then the more we looked at him, we could see he was a much older man. He clearly wasn't a student. It was really hard to tell that 
from basically having been standing outside the car just for a minute. But as soon as we recognized that, she she and I looked at each other um, over the seat. And with that look, we both knew we needed to get out of the car. It just didn't feel right. And so she asked him if he would stop, which was before our stop or before her stop. And he did. And she was able to get out. And I reached for the door to get out. And he literally like floored the gas pedal to the extent that I literally could not get out of the car. And um, I would have gone under the tires of the car. So with he was a big guy. And with one hand, he pushed me down to the floorboard of the car and proceeded to tell me and make me feel behind my head. And uh, there was a gun there proceeded to tell me if I didn't do everything he was going to be asking me to do, he would kill me. And I had absolutely no reason to believe he would not kill me. You know, uh, there, there are, I'm sure you see on your show, there are very few words really to articulate what it feels like when you are threatened with losing your life in that particular moment. It is, it is beyond description everything stops and all you want to do and all I wanted to do was live. That's really what I was thinking about was just let me live. And I kept saying that to him, just let me live, just let me live. And my ordeal went on for many, many hours where he drove around the countryside and I was on the floorboard in the middle of nowhere in the farmland. I didn't know where we were. I was terrified he would kill me and leave me out there. Nobody would ever know what happened to me and my family. So I kept basically begging for my life the entire time. And a few hours later, he stopped in the middle of nowhere, pushed me over barbed wire. I got bleeding everywhere. And, you know, he sexually assaulted me. He raped me. And it was the terrorizing part that was honestly that had more of an impact, the sheer terror of what I was going through. And he actually took me all the way back to the outskirts of my campus, which was really shocking, but this man was clearly deranged. And I ran to my dorm and I collapsed inside my dorm doors of the lobby and um, the security guards called my roommates to come down. Um, and at that point, uh, they she, they called campus security police came over, the local police came over. And what happened to me next was um, was is, was really horrific. And this was the sign of the times back in 1971. Um, there was no sensitivity training or police training or first responder training in any any sense for rape victims. Um, rape was a dirty little secret that nobody wanted to talk about or even address, including law enforcement, hospital staff. Everyone assumed at that point in our history that that the sexual assault was basically the fault of the victim. So I was further victimized, um, which we call now victim blaming by the police who made fun of me. They laughed at me. They, they told me it was my fault. What happened when I went to my friends took me to the hospital to be examined, the doctor and the nurse basically told me that I was disgusting and that the rape was my fault. They didn't want to touch me. I mean, it was just, it was just horrific. And I came away absolutely convinced that the attack was my fault. 
I was shamed. I was embarrassed. And I decided to shut up and basically not tell anyone else uh, except my roommates. And that's the first part of what happened to me. Wow. That, uh, that's a, that's an incredible story. And I, you know, I know as you were talking and you were saying about how, you know, back in the days of the seventies and for me, when I was growing up in the eighties, this was certainly not something that anybody talked about. You know, there weren't the advocacy groups and there wasn't the presence that there is today. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing to me, like even, even during those times, you know, the seventies, when everything is peace and love and great and flower children and the whole nine yards of how wonderful everything is. And, you know, when I grew up in the eighties of just party, have fun, escape reality, everything's awesome. You know, you've got a bit of a similar mindset to the seventies, only more extreme in terms of our fashion sense and our music for them. But it just really, it never ceases to amaze me how people can blame the victim in this and make it seem like it was your fault or like it was my fault for the things that I went through. Like I just, it's, it's frustrating. It's, it, I mean, it causes just so much anger inside because you know, in your heart that there's nothing that you could have done to prevent it. You didn't do anything wrong. You were the victim in the way wrong place at the way wrong time. And, you know, I'm glad that you're here today to share your story, but you know, I've heard stories similar to yours before and just, it never ceases to break my heart just to know that not only what you went through was so horrific, but then to be blamed and to be groomed and to be told that it was your fault to the point where you actually believe that it was your fault. And that kept you silent for such a long time. Yeah, um, it did. And, um, you know, for a couple of decades, actually, I didn't talk about it. Basically, what happened to me after that, Matt, was I suffered terribly from because see, when, as you know, when you suffer a life-threatening trauma or any kind of trauma where you feel threatened and you don't get help for that trauma or process or heal that trauma, it lives in your body. And when it lives in your body, it wreaks havoc on you emotionally and physically and psychologically. And so what happened to me was I became because I stuffed the experience down because I thought it was my fault and I was so embarrassed and ashamed, I became extremely depressed, very anxious all the time. Um, I suffered horrible PTSD and I developed a very severe eating disorder, bulimia, which really crippled me for about 10 years. And I became fear-based. My whole life changed. And you know, the attack is one thing, but what we do as a result of the attack will further define the quality of our lives. And people ask me all the time, like, why do you do what you do? Why are you an advocate? Why are you, why are you committing your life to helping other people? And the reason is, is because once I started getting the help I needed, which really wasn't until my mid-30s, where I entered into trauma therapy and I started doing very intense meditations, guided meditations, mindfulness. In the early 30s, I, start, I started exercise, which has been clinically proven to help heal physically and emotionally because of the mind-body connection. And I started in the late 30s speaking about my experience um, and sharing with other survivors. And all of those things that I did over time helped me to heal. And I went from 
becoming a survivor to really making the transition to thriver. And there's a very distinct difference between those two identifications. You are um, exactly right. There is a huge difference between those two. And it's really when you can first obviously embrace that you are a survivor and that's a huge step in and of itself. And then when you begin to take steps, you know, things that you mentioned you did with seeing a therapist and doing meditations and exercising and really beginning to take your life back, you start to move into that thriving role. And once you get into that, that mindset, it is absolutely life changing and it really just helps catapult your healing journey uh, to ways that, you know, we probably never thought we could do before because we lived in fear and shame and we were depressed and we, you know, dealing with anxiety and and in your case, things like eating disorders as well. And I can relate to a whole lot of what you said. I repressed my memories, like mine happened between when I was five and 10. And then like once I hit, I guess basically like once I graduated, I put it out of my mind. I'm like, I'm not dealing with this. It's not going to help anything. It doesn't matter. It didn't happen. You know, it wasn't anything that bothered me anymore. And so I suppressed it because I just didn't want to deal with it or for whatever reason for like 30 years. But then once I started to do the things that you mentioned, seeing a therapist and whatnot, you know, the healing journey just opened up. And so, uh, you know, I can just, I can appreciate where you're coming from and your message. It sounds familiar to me in many ways. I'm sure I'm familiar to a lot of uh, survivors who have been through such um, horrific experiences. So let's kind of talk a bit into how you started transitioning into the coaching role that you're in now. Like, you know, what, what really prompted you to say, okay, you know, I need to do something else, something more to help people. Where do I start? Like, what was your kind of uh, inspiration, so to speak, to really get into coaching? Well, it's, it's kind of a long answer. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> when I was, <laughs> let's go back to college. So I dropped out of college and I never finished because of the uh, trauma and the PTSD and everything. I was unable to, to study, which is very typical. And, um, but I was going to go into psychology. That's what I was fascinated with. And so that's where that started. But honestly, I have to talk right now about the big pivotal moment for me with with these issues in reaching out to other people. And that's when I had created a women's athletic shoe brand in 1987, which is still around today. It's the only women's athletic footwear company in the world dedicated to women called Rika, R-Y-K-A, Athletic Shoes. And it's been around for 30 years. But when I created it, there was really no athletic shoes for women at the time to speak of, certainly no category for women. And I got very educated about what was really going on with this issue in our country because, you know, one out of four college women are sexually assaulted during their college careers. And I also found out that at that time in 1987, I found that out, which was still the same statistic Sadly enough, um, from when I was in college, it was one out of four women. I also found out and hadn't changed. Statistic had not changed. Then I also found out that one out of five women in the general population were victims of sexual assault. And at that point in 1990, I had to do something. I had to do something in a really public way. I was CEO of a publicly traded company, took it public. And I had a platform to speak. It was a multi-million dollar brand. And um, 
I decided to create the Riker Rose Foundation Regaining One's Self-Esteem. Riker Rose is now the Rose Fund, and it's still in Boston. It's been there since 1990 um, to help in violence against women. And I went public about my story. And I created a profit, not-for-profit partnership between Rika and Rika Rose. And we were the first uh, brand in the country to start to educate the general public and sur- help survivors on a broad scale with social impact marketing and uh, give back programs and social consciousness. So we created programs in the stores for women to become educated about sexual assault, about how to get help, all of that through our store managers and assistant managers. We created education programs, put brochures in the boxes because there was no computers or internet back then about how to get help and where to get help. And I became a mouthpiece for the issue. And, you know, it was, it was 1990 and, <laughs> It was still a very uncomfortable issue for people to hear about. And as you know, Matt, and so that's when my advocacy work started in 1990 um, on a more public scale. And I started being asked to speak around the country to colleges, universities, corporations, women's business organizations. And that's how I got into all of this. So I've never stopped that. Even though I've gone on to create four other brands for women, consumer products, I've never stopped talking about this issue. So, excuse me, the last company that I created, the last brand, I stepped away from it about a year and a half ago. And I decided at that point in my life that, you know, I'm 64 years old now. My kids are now all gone officially from my house. I have four. (laughs) And, um, And I decided that I'm free and I can do whatever I want in terms of um, not having to take care of my children anymore, which is people listening will know it's very liberating and you have a lot of free time. I decided to basically commit my life to this serving this issue and, you know, really um, putting a lot more time and energy, not only into speaking, um, but advocacy. And so I go all around and I speak. But I also decided to do something to more formalize something else, which was something I did on the side, which was sexual assault recovery coaching. And I had done that with people that I met, people who, you know, who would contact me from speeches or family and friends or women I would just meet, you know, I would do it. But I decided to formalize that. And now there's a page on my website, sherrypo.com, for sexual assault recovery coaching. And basically what I do with my coaching is I use my intuitive skills um, to help people through their journey of self-discovery to heal um, and really lead them to very action-based, an action-based plan of healing to become a thriver. It's the path from survivor to thriver. And there's a real difference between a coach and a therapist. I've done all of those things. And, um, you know, a therapist is, um, you know, you show up for an hour and you work on your trauma and you go through it and you, you know, really get into that in a very deep level. And, and the, the only issue that I always found that was, you know, kind of lingering after my sessions was, 
I really want action based, an action based plan. I really want to work with someone who's been through it, who knows all the ins and outs of what comes up. And there's a real difference between working with someone who's been on the journey is on the other side and has the tools because they've lived it, then going to a formal therapist, which could be a psychologist or an MSW. Yeah, you know, one of the things that has attracted me to coaching, um, you know, as we're speaking right now, recording this, I'm in the process of getting my coaching certification for some of the exact same reasons that you just mentioned. Um, You know, I think the role that coaches play, especially ones who are are trauma-informed and have been through, um, you know, the things that you've been through and I've been through, it gives such a unique personal experience and uh, atmosphere for, you know, the client and the coach to work through when both people are on the exact same page of what it feels like and what the journey is and the steps and why you feel the way you do. And I can completely relate. And that's why, you know, I'm in the process of transitioning into that role. And like, I'm excited because of some of the same reasons you just mentioned of being able to, to share with people in a role that and help them because I know where they've been and, to have a bit more of an intimate experience than you can get with a therapist. And of course, we're certainly not, you know, knocking therapists at all, obviously. But, um, you know, I think, you know, for uh, for you, obviously, the coaching is working out great. For me, I'm hoping it'll do the same because of the reasons that you mentioned. And, um, you know, something else I, I wanted to touch on a bit is when you're out, um, you know, doing speaking engagements at colleges, universities, or, you know, business businesses or companies, whatever, you know, the case may be, How well is your message received? And I think maybe specifically more for like the younger generation. Do they tend to embrace it? Do you find, do they seem to just kind of brush it off a little bit? Like maybe people did back when we were younger, so to speak, or. No, no, I would say, first of all, um, the fact that one in four college girls are still victims of sexual assault in 2017 hasn't changed in 45 years is 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 extremely alarming to me and um maybe so that hasn't changed but i think what has started to change is that the um the attitude has changed is starting to change of the audience is it really is because what i've what i've seen in since speaking since 1990 is that now you know there has been a lot of talk about sexual assault and many, many colleges and universities today have a section for incoming freshmen to talk about safety. Now that I'm sure, you know, (laughs) wasn't on the radar for you, I'm sure. And it certainly wasn't on the radar for me. So when I go to audiences and it it really is, it's, it's, I will speak about the young people first. Um, They really want to hear what I have to say. And what's really alarming is that usually there'll be large crowds, um, a few thousand people at a time. And, you know, I say to them, sitting in this room right here, there's one out of four people who have been sexually assaulted right here, right now. And probably most of you feel that it's your fault and you're to blame. And, you know, what happens is, and they're riveted. They are riveted because I tell my personal story, but then I talk about you know, I educate them about the the effects of not sharing and not getting help and what that will do to them. And they're glued because they want to hear because they don't want to live like I lived. 
they want to get help. And inevitably, when I'm done speaking, there is a line of people, mostly women, that want to talk to me, young women. We're talking, they'll wait in line for two or three hours. And the message is the same over and over and over again. Sherry, thank you. Thank you. I have never told anyone else. I haven't told my mother. I haven't told my father. I haven't told my boyfriend. I mean, it is alarming. It is alarming because the, there is no difference between how we feel today being a sexual assault survivor, how I felt 45 years ago. We still believe we did something to make it happen. We still believe we were to blame that it was our fault. That is unilaterally the experience. I have never met anybody who didn't think it was their fault. Not one person. Someone contacted me on my website the other day who I'm, I'm coaching now. She was gang raped by three people at once 25 years ago. There was no way she could have gotten away. She hasn't shared with anyone until she shared with me. It's been 25 years ago. And what was she talking about? It was my fault. I mean, it is crazy. And part, unfortunately, part of the reason that's still true is by definition of the result of the experience, but also because even though, Matt, you mentioned it before, we have tremendous resources now available for sexual assault survivors, whether they're, you know, they're in the general population or they're on college campuses. The resources, it's light, it's night and day. There are so many resources for people today. But the problem is, as a society in our culture, especially in the United States, and I'm sure in many other countries, but I'll speak about the United States, there is still this taboo over talking about it in the general population. You know, I find that people, you know, when I tell people, and I, I say this all day long, one out of four girls, one out of five women, I say it all day long. And people look at me and they're like, really? Are you kidding? Or, you know, I have, I, you'll see from my Instagram, my Facebook, you know, I, I educate people. I put the statistics up there. And people are, are you kidding? Seriously? I mean, <laughs> we, need to, we need to educate the public and take this issue out of the closet. We have a very long way to go. And that's why I'm so passionate about my advocacy work and about doing podcasts and speeches, because that's how we're going to start to change our culture in this country. I mean, not to get political, but, you know, we elected a sexual predator as our president. So it's like that right there tells us we have a very long way to go. Thank God for Joe Biden. The society as a whole across this world, and of course, being in the U.S. where you and I are, is just there's so much room for improvement and so much, so much more that we need to do and work towards. And when you were mentioning about how uh, you know, after you give, um, you know, a speech somewhere or, you know, you're talking to a group of people and, you know, they're lining up, uh, you know, to talk to you and say thank you. And, you know, I'm curious because um, you mentioned that most times it's women. Do you get a lot of men that will come up and say thank you or ask you about it or say that they were sexually abused as a child or something happened to them? And and the reason I bring it up is obviously because I'm a guy and I'm doing what I can to not help just men, but women 
obviously to understand that it's, it's not their fault. Cause as you touched on, we all think it's our fault or excuse me, we all thought it was our fault. And, you know, if we don't talk about it and work through it and heal, we, we spend decades thinking it's our fault when in reality, you and I know that it's never the fault of the victim, but you know, that's the mentality that we live with for such a long time. And, uh, you know, I know for a lot of guys um, and obviously women too, the uh, sexual assault happened when they were children and, and they don't speak up. Um, yeah. Do you get um, any amount of, of guys like, you know, that will come up and say, you know, and just kind of speak to what happened to them at all? I'm not sure. I, I, I need, need to check my facts, but I believe on college campuses, it's one out of eight or nine young men. So it's still a pretty high number. And um, the, what happens with these, with when I go out and speak and do all this is that it's very interesting because boys will come up to me and thank me. Not many, but it happens. What has happened over and over again, which is really fascinating to me, is that I've had numerous times male faculty members, professors, come up to me um, to tell me that they had been sexually assaulted as children. They'll be crying. I've had many men in their 40s and 50s come up to me very emotional and sharing with me that their mothers were sexually assaulted by their fathers and that their mothers have talked about it to their sons. And um, they're very emotional. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite something. And um, the, the young boys who are listening, the male faculty members who are listening, the first responders who are men who are listening, they're very, um, they very much want to hear what I have to say. And that's encouraging to me because I feel like if, if more and more of us become advocates and committed to raising awareness and educating, that things will eventually change. I'm, I'm an optimist. I do believe that things will change. I feel that we have a really long way to go. I mean, on a very personal level, you know, I have four children from 23 to 37, and I have two girls. And my youngest daughter just graduated from um, University of Arizona, and she was in a sorority. There were two young women from her sorority who I got to know, whose mothers I got to know from parents' weekends and all that. And, you know, my daughter called me uh, on two separate occasions to ask my advice about what to do with two of her friends who I knew, whose mothers I met, who had been raped at fat parties, excuse me, who were not getting help who were, you know, very depressed, not going to classes, completely isolating because of their experience. That was last year. I mean, seriously, <laughs> I tried to get her to try to get them to talk to me, but they wouldn't. They talked to her. Then they eventually did tell their moms and get help. But it was a, it was a long process. It was. And this is, this was 2016, you know, that we're talking now. So it's very scary. It really is that, you know, we're so advanced in so many ways and we still have such a long, there's just a huge disconnect, right? There's all these resources. 
there's all this support out there now. There's all these programs and all of that. But to get the survivor to actually reach out, that's one of the biggest issues. And that's what I really focus on when I do my speaking, Matt, is if you know someone who has been sexually assaulted and they are not getting help, or if someone's behavior has dramatically changed, and I tell them the warning signs, then reach out, let them know that you love them and you're here for them. And no matter what they're going through, that you will be by their side and help them. Because so often we're in such trauma after an assault happens, even years later, we don't feel strong enough to get the help we need. We can't be advocates for ourselves. And it falls on the people that know and love us that we trust to be there for us. So when you go to my website and you go to the resources tab, you'll see all these resources. And when you get to the bottom of my page, I have links, how to help a survivor, what you can do, you know, which is vital. As you know, Matt, it's so vital to educate people about, about how they can help. I mean, these are the types of things that we can do as a society to start to change the climate and the culture. You know, we really, we really need to change the, change the climate in our country to create a, a, um, a culture of intolerance. That's what we need to do. You are so very right. And I'm actually looking through um, your website right now. I just brought it up. And if you go to sherrypo.com slash resources, you'll see she has a list of, of hotlines and phone numbers and statistics. And there's um, you know free downloadable resources about how to respond to a survivor, how to help someone you care about, steps to take after um, sexual assault, like things right now that you can download for free right on her website that are extremely helpful. And you know, I think you're, you mentioned something that we'll kind of close out with, and that is, you know, you as a coach and as an advocate and me as an advocate and a blogger and, and you know, future coach and everything. It's imperative that we that we carry that mindset of being an optimist because you're right. I mean, it's been decades and decades and decades and the stats have not changed or if anything gotten worse. And so clearly we, there is a long way to go yet, but if we don't hold on to that hope that what you're doing is making a difference and you know that it is, and what I'm doing makes a difference and any advocate or coach or therapist that makes a difference. I mean, we have to hold on to that and keep trying because the world needs more, more people like you and needs more people who care and have been there and are willing to step up and share their story in order to inspire survivors because you are, you are beyond right. When you say that the, the hardest step and one of the biggest things for a survivor and getting help is just asking for it. You know, it's all right out there in plain view on the internet with your hotlines and what have you. But the first step of getting past that shame and that self-blame and, and, you know, to reach out for help is just absolutely, you know, essential. And I'm hoping that, you know, with the work that you continue to do and everybody that works in, in advocacy just helps to change this, uh, you know, this trend that just never seems to get any better. But it's saddening, but at the same time, it's, you know, I take heart in because of people like you and others who are doing so much to help. So, you know, I'm sure your clients benefit so much from your insight and those you speak with. And, uh, you know, if you ever come to Pennsylvania to talk, let me know. because I, I will be front row. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I come to QVC sometimes, so I will look you up. <laughs> oh, do you really? Yeah, I'm only... Uh... 
I'm less than two hours away from there, you know, you know from oh, there. Oh, yeah. From yeah, I've been, I've been on there quite a bit. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Next time you do, I'll buy you a, uh, a cup of coffee. How's that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's great. Talking Absolutely. It is, it is my honor to help share your story. And, I, and for anyone um, who might be interested uh, in coming to see you speak or for any of your resources or to possibly consider working with you, go ahead and let them know where they can find you on social media and the web and all that good stuff. Yeah. So you can go to sherrypo.com and you can email me um, and I will respond myself. Any questions? Um, you just want to talk. I talk, I talk to people for free all the time. The other thing that would be great is if you go to Sherry Poe Thrive, that's my social media name for Facebook and Instagram. Uh, there's a lot of information that I post on there um, and feel free to follow me. I read all the comments. So if you have something to say, please feel free to express yourself. And I look forward to hearing from everyone. It would be wonderful. Thanks again for listening to Surviving My Podcast, sponsored by survivingmypast.net, a blog about my life with dissociation, anxiety, and PTSD, and in support of all who have survived the trauma of abuse. This podcast or any resources sponsored by survivingmypast.net should not be considered as therapy or professional medical help. If you are in crisis, I encourage you to seek out the services of a mental health or physical health professional. I also encourage you to check out online crisis support from sites like rain.org, oneand6.org, and the Samaritans. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, just contact me anytime through email, matt at survivingmypast.net, or use the contact forms on the blog. Thank you again for your support and encouragement, and always know that you rock. Talk to you soon.